Welcome to the Summer Series of Politics and Psychology, where every Sunday we'll have special episodes of interesting interviews and fun conversations. Well, this is our last episode of the Summer Series, and on this episode, I was a guest on the Faithful Politics Podcast, where we talked about everything from politics, religion, faith, and even the mental health state of our President Biden, as well as Trump. So listen in, and you will definitely enjoy. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics um, listeners and viewers. If you're watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Doing well, Will. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be great. And today we are joined with Dr. Renee Carr. She applies psychology to help political and corporate leaders solve the most pressing social problems affecting their communities, corporations, and countries. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology and not just one, but two master's degrees, uh, one in quantitative and applied psychology and the other in business administration and is known as the problem solver. Um, the fact that you've got a background in psychology um, I, I have to ask you kind of the $30,000 question um, mm-hmm. about the mental state of our current president, um, Joe Biden. And, and I, I've, got a, I've got a question in there also about uh, Trump. But, but why, don't we, why don't we start first, like with, with Biden? So when we, you know, you hear a lot in the news about his mental state, what have you, you're a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, what should we what should we know or how should we, you know, interpret a lot of his behavior that is driving some of these um, perceptions of his like mental acuity? Right. So the bad thing is they're making conjecture and assumptions without having an actual medical or psychological evaluation of President Biden. And so I would have more insight because I do have background, although he is not a patient or a client of mine, so I wouldn't be able to say accurately. But what I do think is that when you do become older, you naturally have a decline in um, how quick you may be as far as your thinking. Your neurons may not fire as fast. So you might also just be tired. And you can be a 35-year-old weightlifter in great shape and having just egg omelets every day. But if you have no sleep, which often presidents have no sleep or they have very little sleep, or they're constantly being bombarded with a lot of different things, then it just also could just be him just being tired and fatigued and handling multiple political strategies in his mind on what to say and what not to say. And he might just be tired of trying to handle everything at one time. So I would say it's more of that. Also, when you are... There's a counterintuitive effect when you're trying to not be something, you end up being that thing. When you try to avoid saying something, you avoid, you end up saying that thing. And so I think because the upcoming elections, I think there's so much pressure to, one, as an older person, he's an older person, also to try to look healthy and youthful, to try to look hip, to try to look like I'm universally diverse but also show that I'm acute, intelligent, and I'm your ideal leader, trying to focus on all of that while trying to not focus on your health, that makes you look as if you're more health-focused or health-challenged. 
I got to like, ask it's, it's you. like when they say, don't paint the wet wall. Well, maybe I should. Then you, all you think about is painting, the, touching the wet wall. What, I'm sorry, what did you say, Josh? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, don't touch the wet wall. It's true. And I got yeah. ADHD and impulse control, so when someone says something, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, like when there's the red button, I'm just like, I got to press that red button. I, I just don't know why it's there. I know red is not good necessarily. If I, So this is just interesting as you're talking, thinking about President Biden how and, and the psychology and, and thinking about how little sleep you said that they get. What can this do to a person to like psychologically to even be president? Is it even, I mean, are we just fooling ourselves? Are we just kidding ourselves? I mean, how is it that we think that this one person can represent all these different people and that one person can do anything close to, it seems like what they're the, the image they're trying to portray. It seems like it's just a false, I think that's that's also the, the key to elections people brand themselves politically as the solution and therefore the public buys that and that's why they vote for them because you're a better solution than this particular candidate. The problem happens when they actually get in office and they realize that they are not the solution and that it's it's a whole lot more stress and it's not as much glitz and glamour or power, then that's why you see the time lapse and you see them aging so significantly greater than the average person who would be, who is either not in the military, not in a high stress environment, and definitely not the president. They all age so quickly because it is so much stress. Their body doesn't have enough time to regenerate the cells. They don't have enough sleep time for their body to go into a restoration state um, of mind, as well as just their cells to regenerate from aging. So they look a whole lot older than what they are because their cells are dying at a faster rate, which gives them the older look, which also can infect the neurological presentation, which be might be forgetfulness, might be not being coordinated, and might be uh, you know, lingering on a person longer than what you should physically or in an embrace. Hmm. So, so like what, what, what pieces of information, I guess, um, would you need to to make some sort of psychological um, or to, to reach some sort of psychological conclusion about a person's mental state, specifically mm-hmm. like the president? So, I mean, like with with Biden and even with Trump, you know, we see them so often they talk, they gaff, they do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like well, what 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 other piece of information would you need to to kind of make an assessment on on their mental state? So in order to make a diagnosis, you would look at the person and how they would act the majority of the time in an ideal situation. So whether you're relaxed or stressed for a clinical diagnosis, what is your presentation? So narcissism is pervasive and it's longstanding whether you're resting or stressed out. So that's why you can accurately say that um, former President Trump would have a narcissistic personality disorder. You can also show about different actions and decisions and how they would act when they're in an emotional or a highly agitated state. The difference would be, okay, well, we have another person who might be very aggressive, might be very arrogant, but it's only in certain situations. So because it's not pervasive and not in multiple situations, then you wouldn't be able to say that that person has a narcissism. But when you look at a person's psychological health, even if you were to say uh, dementia, 
which is declining in your um, cognitive abilities, are they consistently forgetting something? Are they consistently falling? Are they consistently losing balance, regardless of where it is? And if it's a non-pressure state, or are they, are they at the beach, or are they at home, or is it only when they're on camera? You also have to remember, when you're in those um, press conferences, if you have not eaten, if you have not had any rest, and there's a lot of heat, those cameras are very hot, and it's also been the high record temperatures in our you know, world lately, so when you combine the environmental factors from just the environment, the heat, the sun, and then your internal factors of maybe being dehydrated, um, not getting enough sleep, not having enough vitamins, and in addition to being stressed, if they're only acting like that in those high-pressure, high-environmental stimuli situations, then it could be considered an environmental diagnosis. Or you would say it's a psychosis induced by environmental factors or dementia induced by a substance abuse. So you would focus it on, okay, well, if we remove these variables, is the person still going to be able to be stable? So what we only see is him on camera in the press. So you can't make an accurate diagnosis because, one, he doesn't have dementia because he would have to, there would be a lot more that we would see. He may mm-hmm. have some imbalances, but there also could be neurological. He's a tall guy. You know, so it could be where there's a lot more going on with just his joints not working. Maybe he didn't take his, you know, fish oil. So, so there's a lot that could be happening. <laughs> um, take the fish up, oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so standing up for <laughs> a long it. time. So there's a lot of different variables, but he, he does not have any apparent diagnosis of, di- of dementia, neurological, or cognitive decline because – it's not where it's in every situation, in every argument, in every press conference. It's only sometimes. Like, I'm a chocoholic. I'm going to go to a restaurant. I'm going to consistently have chocolate. I'm going to consistently have dessert. Unless I'm on a diet, so then that may be something different. But that doesn't mean I'm a very healthy person because you see me that one time and there's no dessert on my plate. It just means that that particular time, Renee doesn't have a sweet tooth. Or she does, but she's suppressing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's so interesting. So um, kind of kind of pulling back a little bit and just looking at what it, the type of personality you have to have to be president. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like you you have to be somewhat narcissistic, I'd imagine, yeah. to some degree. Right. Because like in, in your mind, you're thinking I'm the best person for this job. And I'm going to solve the entire country's problems um, one way or another. So, like, so what what is sort of the psychology of a person that that you know wants to be president? And like, and mm-hmm. and and how much should we kind of um, you know view that particular mental state and all of their actions? You know, so when right. people are like, yeah, you know, he just wants to get you know elected again, we're like, yeah, of course he does, because that's why he's running. So. Um, so, so maybe you can kind of talk about, you know, broadly speaking, you know, the, the the psychology of a person that wants to be president. I mean, we're in the middle of a of a presidential presidential election right now, and right. you know, all the different people running, I'd assume, are narcissistic in some way or form. Mm-hmm. So let me explain what narcissism is as a clinical personality disorder. So narcissism personality disorder is different from a person who may have narcissistic traits. Narcissism, whether it's a trait or personality, meaning that's who they are at all times and in all situations, uh, narcissism is based off of 
you know, the old fable or the, the tale when you're just looking and loving yourself and everything, it reflects back on you. Everything is from your self view. Depending on what your clinical theory is, you usually would have had a, um, um, a distorted nurturing environment as a child. And therefore, you try to overcompensate that by saying that everyone loves me because it's too much for me to handle to say that my mother or my father rejected me. So you twist it around to make everything about you to help overcompensate for your deep feelings of inadequacy. And so you assume everyone loves you. You talk about how great you are. You're a very self-grandizing, self-promoting person. And no one and nothing else matters unless it reflects back on how great you want others to see you. So you can have a person who is very arrogant, but not narcissistic. Narcissistic means that everything must come back to reflect positively on me or must reflect how I see you in this relationship or in my role as president. Whereas um, a person who is arrogant is just someone who just really thinks highly of himself and just disregards you completely. You like you mean nothing to his or her end or or um, platform. So when you look at persons who are have personalities, they are attracted to politics in general. Those persons are more likely to have leadership qualities, to be comfortable being seen, being in the public eye, and to also enjoy those. So they're more likely to be on the higher end of extroversion than introversion. And if they are an introvert, they are able to not, they're able to still be able to function in the public, but for a limited amount of times of interaction. So when it comes to people who are in the military, persons who are in the Air Force will have different personalities than those who are attracted to the Marines. So when you're attracted to a state level politic as a council member, versus someone who's in Congress, versus someone who's at the federal presidential level, you do have higher levels of desiring public attention and feeling very comfortable in that. And so Mm -hmm. as a president, you may not necessarily be narcissistic, but you very much enjoy being on camera, but that could be any actor. Mm -hmm. But you enjoy having the power that comes along with you having fame. Right, yeah, you want the power Right. That comes along with it, which makes sense. We all want power to control right. our lives <laughs> and power to do the things that, you know, we want to do and not be right. told what to do. When you're talking about someone being a narcissist, like the idea of President Trump, because we talk president, former President Trump is a narcissist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does one go about what well, kind of a two set of question? And you kind of begin to answer, but how do you go about like actually what is the method you might use to figure out if President Trump is, in fact, a narcissist? Is it just that he talks about himself in any, you know, public, you know, forum that he's a part of? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know. And then the uh-huh. second thing is, if someone is a narcissist, how then can we blame them for being a if, Like, if it's a, if it's a mental disease, Right. If it's a mental illness, can we blame them for being a narcissist? And what do we do? Do we ban narcissists from office? <laughs> well, how do we what do we right. what do we do? How, how, how do we proceed? Well, you definitely uh, 
might have more beneficial politics, but maybe not as productive if you didn't have people who are narcissistic alpha type males. So personality disorders are an understanding of a person's function, view of themselves, view of the world, and view of their existence in that world. It's not a mental health disease, but it is a classification of repeatedly identifiable behavioral and psychological traits. So by having that definition, we know that we can, as clinicians, confidently say that former President Trump has narcissistic personality disorder because of his repeated um, experiences of who he is as a person. So it's not just saying I'm a great person and everyone loves me. It's his pervasive use of everything going back to the greatness that he wants the public to see, even if it's delusional. So if anyone is all, every time you hear or read the person saying something about, oh, I'm the greatest at doing this. I'm the greatest president of all time. I have more followers than, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. Like if everything that they do is always so much significantly greater than anything or anyone else that has ever lived, that's a hallmark trait of I am just the supreme being. That's a whole lot different from like, well, yeah, I'm really good at psychology, but no, I'm not so good at knowing how to bake a souffle. Whereas a narcissistic person would say, well, yes, of course, I'm the best souffle maker. Like the chefs who are at Michelin star, they come to me for training. Like I give them advice. So that's a whole lot. Personality disorders are very pervasive. So no, we can't ban them because they're the ones who are going to be the most outspoken. But you have to recognize who is the person who is confident and aggressive versus narcissistic and also opportunistic in a way that's oppressive to other people. So with former President Trump, his main claim to fame, or not claim to fame, but his personality profile is everything that I do is the great and the best. And even if I have to lie about the facts to support my beliefs, then that's what I'm going to do because I cannot handle psychologically anything not being true about how great I am. Now, as a psychologist, I do <laughs> always have empathy for former President Trump because I know that for that to be that significant, there are relationship and views of self that were compromised when he was a baby all the way up to his developmental years. So to me, I feel sorry for the baby Donald Trump because that little boy wasn't nurtured, wasn't cared for, and was either rejected or was in a very hostile situation with his caregiver. So I do have empathy for him. However, he is still now a grown adult who can be responsible for his actions, and so that's where I would work with him. I think I think you are the first guest to to show compassion for baby Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, <laughs> definitely, but definitely. You know, like that was, no, I mean, I love that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, one one of the things that is striking about the former president um, um, isn't necessarily so much about him as it is a lot of his supporters and followers. Um, you know, oftentimes you hear people say, you know, it's a cult, it's a cult, you know, and, and um, especially like within kind of the purview of, of believers, Christians, they really do put, put him kind of on this high pedestal. I mean, we've had theologians that have 
unpacked some of why that is. They they say that you know there's prophecy. People compare him to like King Cyrus in the Bible, mm-hmm. um, but like like is there another explanation for why so many Christians um, treat Trump you know as like this divine figure? Yes. So when it comes to religion or religiosity, people already have one mindset that is based off religious practices and glorifying or putting on a pedestal a particular religious leader. So that's the religiosity is one thing. When you combine that with groupthink, meaning that we all think he is the second coming of Christ, and when we attach that to our beliefs in Christ, a higher power, and that if you attack our religious beliefs, we are then going to have to defend that because that gets into our deeper moral beliefs and values, then you are manipulating or what you're seeing is the manifestation of the belief system of highly religious people or religiosity, which is they focus on behaviors and people rather than true doctrine or understanding what the religion may mean. In addition to we have groupthink, which means that as the group, we are going to intensify the beliefs of everyone else in the group intensify our cohesion and power as a collective because together we can't be separated and together we also have individual anonymity meaning that i can be more loud and more vocal because my peers are supporting what i think and believe in and if we're edging each other on or pumping each other up then we're going to be more and more stronger in our beliefs than if we were just individuals when you combine that with religiosity meaning not necessarily a spiritual belief, but the act of being religious, then they are focusing more on, well, this is just what we are meant to do. This is our belief power. And wherever two or more are gathered, then we're going to be even more powerful. So then they're using religious doctrine to reinforce the group thing. So you have like a double whammy. So if they had just been religious on their own, it would not be as intense or cult-like as if it were in a group of people. Yeah, the group thing can be so dangerous, and yet it feels yeah. like it's also part of what makes it so we can get things accomplished when we all have to be thinking the same thing at right. the same time, right? Right. And right. there's that trying to uh, navigate the difficulty of straddling both sides of that. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine but- it's very, very difficult. I mean, I know it's difficult because I've had to do it in my own life. And when we're encountering tension um, in relationships, tension in life, a lot of that revolves around the stuff we communicate about, the stuff we talk about. Right. What do you think, where where do you see America right now um, in terms of its ability to talk about matters of faith, matters mm-hmm. of religion, matters of politics in a way that can express unity as opposed to just disunity Mm -hmm. and how do we improve how do we get better at talking about these things i think that unfortunately um the more extreme republican members have branded themselves as the religious um, moral majority and so now religion in our country has become well if you're talking about christianity then you must be republican and if you're talking about we can have, you know, freedom and sexual 
perversion or sexuality, then they must be a Democrat. And so I think that we have to revamp and restart with understanding that religion is not a political party, nor is faith a religion or political party. We have to recognize that we can talk about faith without it being political by focusing on what do you believe in and what does that religion mean to you? What does that faith that you have mean to you as a person, as a citizen, as a voter, without polarizing it by saying, well, that's because you're this bad person or you're a demonized person. If you were truly coming from a place of faith and morality, it you wouldn't have to add in, well, they don't. You wouldn't be polarizing in your language. So you would focus more on what is the best for the country or for the community or for the state without making your faith talk polarizing. So that's the main part of it. I think that we can improve if people of faith or people who are, you know, believers in Christ or Christians, if they were focused more on pleasing God than pleasing man, because now what you see is a lot of Christians are in the closet and afraid to speak what they really feel because they, they are afraid of being canceled or rejected by society or their peers. And so this twisted form of religion, which is divisive and being politically polarized, is now being seen as, okay, well, this is what Christians do, or this is what people of faith do. They are this kind of way, or they're this mean, and they support things in a very aggressive way, rather than coming from a place of faith and love. And if you believe in Jesus, what does Jesus represent as far as love and compassion and understanding, and not this hostile, judgmental hang them by the neck if you don't believe what I believe. So I think we have to, one, persons of faith, be strong in that faith and not fearful of expressing your faith because you're afraid of men rejecting you. So that's the first that everyone can do by themselves at this moment to just introspect and say, okay, well, am I afraid of talking about my faith because it'll make me seem like I'm this political party or that political party? Or why am I not speaking up about a particular issue? Because it may they may come back and say, oh, well, then if you believe this, then you must be a hater or a foe or something. So be confident in your faith and speak that. And that's mm-hmm. how we can start off today, being better. Oh, that's that, that's that's so good. Um, and 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 I want to I, I want to ask you about like biases, right? Because anybody that you know, reads news or critiques other people's reading of news or watching of news, you know, they're, they always say, oh, you know, Washington Post is biased or Fox is biased and, and, and what, whatnot. But, um, but like within these organizations, like there are people and the people mm-hmm. collectively have, or I shouldn't say like individually have their own biases. Mm-hmm. So, so how can we, I don't know, like consume news, be responsible news consumers, um, and recognize that there are biases that may be implicit within sort of the story they're, they're writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how can we ensure that we're getting the, the full story? Um, and I'll, 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 I'll give you a, a real quick example um, that I do anyways, is that, you know, recognizing that maybe some of these news organizations might have corporate biases that will 
put a lot of attention on, say, Trump stories, but not enough uh, focus on immigration stories. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking for information about, say, the border, I don't necessarily run to MSNBC. Like, I, I may actually read a about a reporter or from a reporter that, you know, from Fox or Breitbart or something like that. So, mm -hmm. so help us kind of understand biases sort of in, in our media environment. So in the media, so a bias is when you're slanted toward a particular way of thinking or believing. And so if you choose to have news to be unbiased in your conclusions, I suggest finding someone that a, a, a radio station or a news outlet that you completely don't agree with, find one that you do agree with, and then also find an independent source. So if you really, really want to know the truth, listen to all three and then see what they say and what are the, the fine lines of truth that are continued in each one. You can always just also go to an independent publisher or an independent, independent news outlet. And there's a lot of those popping up that are also giving unbiased commentary, even in their headlines without the, you know, the, uh, the clickbait words. So I would suggest doing that. So when we're talking about our own like uh, the mental, like the psychology of politics, psychology of religion, we mm -hmm. have to deal with um, people who right, have very different psychologies than we do, if that's how you would say that, worldviews, bias, but their psychology mm -hmm. works similarly, yet coming to different conclusions, different effects, different things like that. How How do we... How do we as a as a people like is there help for those who are narcissistic? Can they change? Are we able to change? Like what kinds of things do can we do to make sure that, you know, we're giving the correct amount of empathy, but also giving the correct amount of accountability mm -hmm. to the people in our lives, right? Because I guess the reason I'm saying this is this is a much broader conversation than even, oh, that president's got dementia or that president's a narcissist, a mm -hmm. clinical narcissist. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's all great. But we deal with that in our own lives, talking right. about right. this person's got mental illness, this person. And, and we essentially like detach their own intentions from mm -hmm. their actions at some mm -hmm. level or or vice or vice versa. What? How, what can we do? What how, what um, insights does the does the realm of psychology give us to figure out how we can be more gracious and more accountable and hold people more accountable and also be gracious to them? I think first by being gracious and honest with yourself. What do you believe? What do you think? What do you feel? And how do you feel after being with or around this person? So in your personal life, if this person always makes you feel very insecure or inadequate or like you're on pins and needles, if you're honest with yourself, then be gracious enough to say, I do deserve better than this. And there's nothing wrong with me going after a different relationship or leaving this relationship or employer when it comes to your president or a high profile elected leader, you have to also say, okay, well, this is now becoming too absurd 
and the person does have have opportunity to change if they want to, but they don't. So to have a true diagnosis of personality disorder, they are not going to change because you're being nice to them. They're only going to change by you changing yourself out of that situation. They have too much internalized belief systems about themselves, the world, and their future that one person is never going to change them. That will require um, intense psychological help and counseling. And more than that, they would have to want to change. But it's like when a person has bipolar one disorder. A lot of times people who have bipolar one, when they're in a very manic state, they enjoy that high. They enjoy being very productive. They enjoy having um, excitement or a lot of sex feeling powerful or omnipotent, they enjoy that. So it's very hard for them to take medication if they're in the manic phase of it because it's like, well, I'm at my best right now. I don't need to get any sleep. Like, you know, they're all over the place. But the similarly, when someone is narcissistic, they are getting enough external affirmation of what they want to believe about themselves. They're having enough external control of the people and the situations around them that help to push down their own sense of deep inadequacy that not one person is going to just help them get out of it because it's serving them. And so you have to then be mindful of saying this person is unhealthy and I cannot change them. And no matter how much I love them, I can't love them out of the mania. I can't love them out of the grandiosity or the narcissism, but I can love myself and I can love them enough to say, I'm not going to reinforce your unhealthy behavior by removing myself, by not voting for you, or by holding you legally accountable for your actions. Hmm. That's so interesting. Um, okay, I got a statement and then a question. Okay. <laughs> so so my, my statement is person, woman, man, camera, TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my question is, what is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Exam, and why did I just ace it? Hmm, I don't know. That's in Canada. So. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, like, it's like the, 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 the Cognitive Assessment Exam. It, it was, it's this thing that, like, Trump was promoting that he passed because like, it was like a mental acuity test or something. And so uh-huh. he was going around saying person, woman, man, camera, TV, and was saying Seriously? that. As, it, it, yeah, you don't, you don't remember that, Josh? No, yeah. no, not him saying all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but that just shows you that if a person is, you know, again, uh, another trait that we as uh, psychologists would recognize of him, just another example of even your, mental health, you're taking one test that's not psychologically or empirically validated, you are skewing information to just feed back to yourself and to others how great you think you are. Even when he had COVID, oh yeah, I beat it. No, you had high profile medical doctors at Walter helping you with the best of medication and it wasn't really you just being this superhuman, it was medication. So that just is another example of just using false information or twisting mm. actual information to your benefit, which is a trait of narcissism. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, part of our show or not part of our show, our show is 
Um, I'm the one that kind of stays up to date on political news, and Josh is loves theology. Um, and I, I actually do kind of have have a love of politics. Like I just I just love just being in the know, reading, just kind of understanding what's going on in the world. But I'm also really interested in people that think differently than I do, mm-hmm. um, radically different. Um, so when I go visit um, family or in-laws that, that might have a different political background that I, or political belief that I have, I love talking politics, but I'm often cautioned by those who love me to not talk about <laughs> politics uh, because they're like, yeah, don't talk, don't talk about X, Y, or Z because yeah, you're not going to be received well. So, so like mm-hmm. how, like what are some strategies for me and, you know, our audience to utilize when we are say at a, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or some other, you know, informal um, eating setting. And we want to understand where, you know, a person is coming from about a particular hot political issue. I mean, like if I, if, if I if I just dropped on the table, you know, with with some some of my uh, family members and loved ones, like, hey, hey, isn't CRT great? You know, <laughs> like I'm going to be mm-hmm. met with a lot of different reactions, and probably not all of them are going to be great or good. Mm-hmm. So, so h- how do I do that? Okay, so first, how are you introducing this at the dinner table during the holiday gatherings? Well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, so my, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to like give away sort of my plan. So any of my, my okay. family members listening to this <laughs> are going to know. Um, I, I'll normally just start by saying, Hey, have you been watching the news lately um, mm-hmm. about, you know, this particular topic, you know, I'll just say like Ukraine or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll try to find kind of like a halfway point between where I want to go um, mm-hmm. to, just get people's brains warmed up so mm-hmm. I'm not coming at them hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. then and then based on kind of their reaction about just the halfway point information, I, I will judge whether or not it would be healthy for me to ask a follow-up question. <laughs> okay. And then how would you suppose you mentioned CRT and someone seemed open to it at the table? Then what would be your follow-up question? Yeah, so I, I I suppose I would just ask them, you know, like why they think that way and or mm-hmm. what sources that they are basing, you know, their their opinions um, mm-hmm. off of. Okay. Well, I could definitely see why your family wouldn't want you to have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have a very intense conversation or the potential for intensity, then avoid ever using the question starting with or including anywhere why. Whenever you say why, especially if you are on like the legal, you know, witness stand, why automatically puts a person in a place of defense. So if you're like, well, why do you think that? Well, why did you not pick up the poop off the grass? I mean, no matter what it is, the why makes a person have to self-defend and they're then going to then come at you from a place of defensiveness. And so avoid ever using the word why, especially when you have, want to have a conversation about politics at the family table. Second, when you said, well, then what are your resources? So you are obviously an intelligent person. 
And so they're going to think of it as if they have their own intellectual insecurities or a low confidence level of their ability to handle an argument or to defend their argument by you asking, okay, well, then what are your resources? That is a very defense approach that you're responding with. So you're saying, okay, well, then how are you able to, so this is how it appears when you have uh, the neuro-linguistics of that conversation. So Will's gonna be nice, pass potato salad, pass the turkey. Oh, hey, so what do you think about CRT? Blah, 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 blah. Well, then why do you think that way? Well, then what are your resources? You see how that's, that's very, it seems as if you're coming from a place of yes. I already have my own agenda, what I want to say, what I want to prove. And someone right. else hearing that, well, then say, okay, well, then I need to then also recognize since he's already being defensive, I have to now get my tools and warfare ready so I can be in battle with this person. So you're having very uh, flame-igniting conversation starters. So instead, I want to encourage you to say, I really value the intelligence of our family. We're the smartest people that I know. What are some of your thoughts on it? And just give them time to ask or to respond. And don't ask, well, what are your sources? Just say, oh, really? Well, how would you, you know, um, I'm interested in learning more about that. Where can I go read more about it? That's how you mm. can get it. So you make it where you're coming around it, where you're actually valuing their information, you're valuing their different viewpoints without making them feel as if they have to give a dissertation or a debate at the family table and then look stupid in front of their family or in front of you because they don't want to say the wrong thing. And then their own insecurities will then flare up and then they'll be defensive and then they'll just shut down the argument, get angry, something bad words might be said, but they won't really be open to a true conversation. So avoid the use of why and ask questions as if you are truly trying to learn about them rather than defend your own position. Hmm. That's that's really good. This this is super helpful. I I I feel like we should be paying you. Uh, I feel like, like we should better. just be asking these like scenario questions. Like, okay, so yeah, I'm in an argument with my wife. I'm in an argument with my wife about politics. How do I get out of this? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yes, because I was thinking, I was thinking about when you were talking about narcissism and relationships, and sometimes people may use that. Oh, you're being narcissistic, especially a female may say that as a way to disempower the man and then get her away, which is just truly narcissistic herself. Hmm. So. That's interesting. So is it, I mean, is it possible at the individual level to ever really change somebody's mind? Uh, and if not, like, like what, what does it mean for a person to change their mind? Cause I, you know, especially in the political space, you know, it, it makes like major news when they're like, oh, you know, so-and-so politician chained from Republican to Democrat or Democrat mm -hmm. to Republican. And you're like, like, what's the big deal? Um, but, but like, I can't remember a single interaction I've had with somebody and, and probably most of it has to do with probably what you just corrected me on, you know, maybe my, my approach, but like, you know, trying to tell somebody, no, like you're wrong. Like, you're, this is this is objectively incorrect. The the thing that you you know feel is is so right. You know whether that's with the election or whether it's you know about Russia or or whatever else. So like, is it is it even possible or is it just sort of a mood a mood exercise? 
Well, it would depend on the situation, the content, and the people involved. So if I were working with someone, I change minds all the time, but I change their minds by giving them information. I work with very egotistical people, um, very arrogant, um, alpha, heavy male, white male dominated. So in order for me to help them want to change their mind, I would have to give them information that's of most value to them. First of all, that's all they would care about. And second, they would have to see that my information and advice is in no way self-serving. So when you want to help someone change their mind, whether it's with your spouse, um, a school board, or your president, you would have to then say, or at the family dinner, you would have to want to clearly communicate that you have the best intention for the other person to have a higher level of understanding and that you have no dog in the fight when it comes to only one particular way. You have to clearly show that you care about them. There are several clients I have and I have diametrically opposed personal beliefs about that, but if they're in a position of power and they have to make a decision about something, I'm going to, they'll, they know, okay, well, you know, Renee doesn't believe in this thing, but I have to talk about it because now this is part of my platform and she will still tell me the objective evidence or information of what will help make this decision more comfortable for me to say or go along with or to retract my earlier statements. So they have to know in order for anyone to change their mind, it's a belief system. And they have to then say, okay, well then, if I change my beliefs, that's attached to another belief about who I say that I am. So if they're more tied to ego rather than truth, I'm not going to change my mind at any circumstance because changing my mind is more of a power statement of me not having power. So you may be making perfect sense, but I'm not going to change it. That'll hurt my image. But if I really do want to care and I really do want to change and you're telling me this information from a place of empathy or from my own welfare and no personal biases of your own, then you're more likely to help that person see the other side and then want to then make their own different conclusions. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I always hear all the time, pray for your president, pray for your president. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter if you know, they were, you voted for them or not, pray for them. Mm -hmm. What, you know, so often when we, especially when we have someone we don't like in office or something like that, we don't want to pray for them. Yeah. Why? What is it psychology? What's, what psychologically is going on there? Why? And what does it do for us when we pray? Mm -hmm. For someone like say in this case, it's a president, but it could be for anybody. So right. you disagree with how, what does prayer to do to us psychologically? How can we, and should we be praying for a president? Will that help us become better American citizens? So that's a good question. You, yes, this is a very good question. <laughs> so does that make me a narcissist for saying that was a good question? <laughs> I think it might. My questions no, are the no, greatest, by the way, they're always good. No, you have owls in the background. So if I was looking at the symbology, I would think that you're yes. open to knowledge and understanding. I am. Uh, I am. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever a person says, I'm not going to pray for them, 
it's because that person is being self-centered and has their own desire and their own needs that they want to be paramount more than anything else of what God mm. can do, which means that their prayer life is also very self-serving and their list and prayers to God are also very self-serving. Like, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Oh yeah, thank you for mm. giving me that, but not really a relationship with God or the Holy Spirit. And so when it comes to a person refusing to pray for their president, like with Jonah, I'm just going to completely run away from the issue. Then what you would say is not my will be done, God, but your will or God, you have allowed this person to be in office. And I have to be honest with you, this person was completely horrible, but you allowed it for a reason. So then first guide my prayers so that I can help honor this person in this position to be a way or a conduit to bring about the best for my country. And it may be something as simple as God, let that person have good advisors like Dr. Renee Carr, the problem solver, who will <laughs> give them information that will help us get across what is best for our country and for your godly kingdom. Yeah, that's, that's really good. It, the, um, so as a person that, um, you know, that has dedicated your life education to understanding the brain, um, and I don't know what your faith background is mm -hmm. and it's it's not necessary um, for for the question I'm going to ask you, but but um, it may help you better relate. Um, so so non-believers um, probably look at believers with a bit of a side eye, um, mm -hmm. thinking that you know they believe in this you know magical wizard up in the sky that you know grants wishes or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I have to say that because I used to be a non-believer, and that's exactly what I what I thought. <laughs> so, um, but I, I've seen people's faith, you know, positively impact them in ways that are unexplainable. Um, but I've also seen people of faith use their faith in very destructive ways. And I, and I think, you know, especially in America, there's like a whole you know, whole history of that, whether it's like the doctrine of yeah. discovery or, you know, the, the slave or Negro Bible and, and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. so talk, talk a little bit about, you know, um, about people's faith and kind of what it does to us. Um, you know, and not necessarily spiritually, um, mm -hmm. but, but, but like, how, how does faith help us, um, you know, kind of work through life, um, that, that all of us, you know, have to live. Okay. So when you look at happiness studies, um, personality is the main contributor on how happy a person will be. But one of the other of the 12 main variables is belief in a higher power and faith in that higher power. So the reason why people who have faith are happier than those who don't is because they recognize that I am limited, but that's okay. There's a higher power who can guide me. Now, if you put your higher power in a person who is proven to be faulty and an earthly human who is going to make mistakes, or if you put it into a higher power, God, you can even be someone who worships trees. It's still you, the act of you accepting your own weakness as a human and putting and acknowledging a power outside of yourself that can help you in this world. So belief in the higher power increases happiness levels. It decreases stress. And whenever you have a married couple, 
that have the same belief in the same thing, then they are more likely to have higher levels of marital happiness than if one spouse believed in trees and the other spouse believed in nothing. So if they both believe in trees, they will still have higher happiness levels than if neither one of them believed in anything. So that's the one thing. It helps just give you less stress because you take the stress off of yourself. When it comes to uh, believing that, you know, if you believe in a higher power, then it's because you're weak or you're lower intelligent. That's often from people who have been very successful and very intelligent, and they haven't had a reason or haven't had anyone in their upbringing who they could rely on. So they had to rely on themselves for survival. And so I'm not going to rely on someone that I can't see or this God that you're talking about because I had a mother or a father, a grandmother or a community who completely failed me and it was up to me to protect myself. So I can't believe in a God that I don't see when people who I did see completely failed me or hurt me. So that would be the basis of what faith does to you your view of the world and your view of other people and how you will be likely to make narcissistic political decisions or even career choices. And what was the other part that you were asking? Oh, kind of like, um, you know, what, what, what it does to you mm -hmm. uh, physically or mentally. Yeah. So the, yeah, so that would definitely decrease your stress. You would have lower stress levels, less likely to sneak to uh, smoke or drink alcohol you're also more likely to have less stress neurologically. You can see it on PET scans and you can see that okay, the person is less likely to also um, engage in argumentative behavior or to choose relationships out of hostility. Interesting. So, 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 the, so the fact that I'm, I bring up awkward conversations at the dinner table um, and am met with hostility means that I should probably go to church more. No, you seem to be like you're an introverted guy who's very intelligent, but because you're intelligent and because you're introverted, then you may have not been like the most popular guy in high school, but you once so you hope this isn't too much, but because you know, well, I'm going to ask you to do it to me next. <laughs> you're like spot on. I mean, like in, in high school, I was like on the model rocketry team. I was into yeah. gathering. I, mean, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school. So like, I don't know how you were doing your voodoo magic, but that's. Yeah. About, that's about <laughs> so I think that's that good. because of that, it gives you a sense of confidence and you value your intelligence because that's not going to fail you or bully you or ostracize you. And you're always you have that because you have objective evidence of your intelligence making you successful, making smart choices and, and succeeding or achieving your goals. So people who are highly intelligent are less likely to be equally believing in a higher power because they rest in themselves rather than a higher power. because They see themselves as the higher power. So I think that one reason why you may ask questions is because there might be a little bit of residual I'm going to make sure that I'm, you know, can, can comforting myself at my intelligence level. But you also have to remember that just because you're this great, successful person now, whenever you go to a childhood setting, you go back to who you were in that setting. So if you're going back to your community, back to your grandma's or big mama's house, and it's the same smell, same furniture, you are subconsciously 
remembering that vulnerable person of who you were at that time. So you may be more likely to want to prove yourself or to have an argument to, to show that you are no longer that little scared boy anymore. I hope mm. that was okay too. Yeah, I feel seen. I feel yes. seen. <laughs> so what about me? <laughs> well, you haven't really said that much, but you did mention about your uh, wife. You did, and I see that, um, but you did mention about the ADHD and yes, um, you know, not paying a lot of attention. So, but you also have like a little thing in the tapestry background. So I don't know if that's your wife's where you're putting yes, up. This is my thing. wife's <laughs> office that she has done for online school that I confiscate. Okay. These, okay. And who picked out that microphone for you? I did actually. Okay. So that was what attracted me to keep looking at your screen. And so to me that, and just based off of our conversation it let, and some of the questions that you were asking me is that because you two are like, I can see why you guys would be friends because both of you kind of must have a very mellow relationship, no stress. Hey, you want to do this? Okay. Boom. I'll do that. I'll do this. Yeah. Like, I think it feels very relaxed. But I think that with you, I think that because you are a nice guy and I think that you look a whole lot stronger than what you may feel like in a public setting, mm. then I think that there may be a conflict of I look one way, but inside I may feel not this alpha super macho kind of person and therefore that may have like a little insult to injury to then question that you really are a good man and a strong man. And I think mm. that like with your microphone, it changes colors. I think that means that there are so many <laughs> different layers to you, but unless someone actually took the time to know you, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get a chance to see that there are so many other great things about you that they would have to yet discover rather than just what's on the surface of you. Mm, man, I do feel seen. You're right. Well, that was awesome. Thank you. Yes. you know, I had this one last, like for me, like this question, that was so cool. But like, so like thinking about again, like the psychology of politics, religion, all that stuff. How do you like, what, what, how should we think about and what's going on psychologically when we're thinking about who we're voting for? Mm -hmm. Like how, how, what would you imagine is happening and what you know that is happening from your study and research? And then what, like, what can we do to be better voters in civic? Better, yeah, to be a better yeah, civic. voter, then do the research on who you're going to vote for, whether it's the, uh, the school board, which makes a lot of decisions as far as book bans or what's allowed in school and funding to your um, national president. Do your research on who the person that you think that you like and look at the track record, not what they are saying on this current platform. So do your research about what that. they've actually done, what they've actually have already done. Because if you're a good person and you truly care about human trafficking and protecting children, it won't all of a sudden be a platform issue. You would have done something along the way to to be a volunteer at, and when you're high school or something, you would have done more than just making it a platform issue. Also be aware that as a voter, don't get caught up in the hype of the people behind the machine that's creating the branding, the messaging, and that's using words to make you 
think a particular way or feel a particular way about a person because you'll say, oh, I like him or I like her. So you already now have a relationship in your mind about what's similar mm. or how the other person will somehow like you back or is likable and is someone that you would want to associate with. But one reason why President Trump has such a deep following is because it's a um, affinity by association, meaning he, you know, has extreme beliefs when it comes to race. He hears us. He sees us. He's strong enough. He's not going to take any BS from anybody. He is going to um, believe in what he says, even if no one's against him. And that's me. I feel like no one sees me. I'm not going to back down. I respect a man like that. I like Trump. So I'm going to therefore vote for Trump because he is like me. And so if you mistakenly believe that someone is like you and therefore you like them, then you're, you're making your vote based off of a person that you think is like you, but it's really just their messaging and the branding machine behind them. So don't at all go for their slogans. Don't mm. go for their speeches. Don't go for their, their website or what they're saying and how many babies they're kissing. Look at what have they already done, whether they are a new-time political candidate, whether they've been in history, look at their voting bills or their voting history and track record, and then choose your decision based off of who they have shown you to be, which is a good, good advice in relationships as well. Don't go off of the promise of what someone is going to be to you or after who they've already shown you who they are. Mm. Wow, that's yeah. so good. And that's so good. And during all of this, one second, well, during all of this, like your brain and your mind, your heart, they're just going to, um, they're just going to like naturally kind of pick up what you need as you're researching. Right. Like you're going to be able to find, so like the, should we question yes. ourselves? Should we, should we like... I guess it's more like how do we how do we become the best citizen we can be by mm -hmm. hijacking our psychology for us in mm -hmm. <laughs> in our in our mind, you know? As like far as voting, yeah, yeah, and f yeah. I mean, voting, but yeah, I mean, voting would be the most specific instance I gave. Yeah, for sure. But write even down, just like yeah, write down. You could just take like an index card, even a business card. Write down what are the five things that you really want for yourself, for your community, and for our country. What are mm. the five things that I want? And if it's a local candidate, does this person have a history of doing these five things that I truly value? And if not, we go to the next person and just use a very unbiased, very systematic way of having this is what I want. These are my subjective desires. And this is the objective facts of what who has done what. Right. And regardless of which political party, who is the one who has a history of doing the five things that I really want to see? Well, that was the final episode of our summer series. I really hope that you enjoyed it. And season three of Politics and Psychology starts on September the 14th. And starting with this season, we are going to have live caller Q&A. You can also submit your questions via email, text, or direct message on social media. So I look forward to getting all of those. We will also have a question of the week. Of course, it will be a controversial 
topic-based question, and I really want to hear your feedback. Enjoy the rest of your summer. I just grab my keys and snag my favorite CD.